All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is March 1st, 2023, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I am in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking via phone with John Friends, who is located in Vincennes, Indiana. Is that correct? Correct. And we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 11 1555. <laughs> All right, great. And uh, what were your parents' names? My parents' names? Yes. Okay, George E. Friends and Myra J. Kaiser. Was their maiden name Kaiser? Okay. And how did you get to Indiana? When I graduated from college, I started in uh, restaurant management and uh, started in Wisconsin. Uh, was moved to Clinton, Iowa, Freeport, Illinois, uh, Davenport, Iowa. Henderson, Kentucky, and then uh, went together with another manager, and we bought our own location in Madison, Indiana, and then Vincennes, Indiana, and that's where I reside since August 1st of 81. Okay. And uh, do you have any siblings? I have... uh, Nine brothers and sisters, uh, just one has passed away. Okay. So it's a good Catholic family. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, And how would you describe your childhood? Excuse me? How would you describe your childhood? Oh, I I was right in the middle. I was number six of the ten, and uh, you had to learn to uh, cooperate, negotiate, and... uh, it, I think that actually helped uh, once in the politics was learning to deal with uh, so many brothers and sisters. Yeah, I bet. Makes sense. Um, so who were the most influential people then in your childhood? Oh, my mother. Uh, she was always was in the pilot or she wasn't uh never ran for office but she did she was a poll watcher uh and uh she's always uh into it i still remember when i was young the 1960 presidential campaign of kennedy versus nixon and uh my dad was a uh, always was a hardcore republican my mom was uh, middle of the road, went back and forth. Okay. And, and uh, she was talking about how important it was for my dad to, to vote for, for Kennedy. I still remember that. And I was just a, um, a five-year-old or four or five-year-old. Then I, but I still remember that mom pushing for Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. Okay. Um, and let's see, so where did you go to college? I went to uh, St. Thomas University in St. Paul, Minnesota. My major was journalism with emphasis in political science. Ah, okay. In a journalism degree, you had to pick an emphasis, and I 
pick political science. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, University of St. Thomas is a lot larger now than it was then, but they had a lot of uh, the, the professors, teachers were people in the business that would come and teach those classes. So you'd have the local uh, newscasters and you'd have people that were into uh, city planning and such putting the classes on. So you're learning from the people firsthand on uh, city planning and things like that. Back then, uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul went into uh, a metro area um, similar to what Indianapolis went into for all Marion County being one government except the pre-existing cities. And But in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the counties are were much smaller, but it was, it's a seven-county um, uh, government entity there over Minneapolis St. Paul still exists today that has some of the powers that the cities don't have or take care of because it's a huge area. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So I learned about that so it was no surprise to me when I moved to Indiana about the Indianapolis metro area and same thing uh Louisville was another first one of the early on cities that did that metro uh, consolidation. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see, were you involved in any extracurricular activities when you were in college? I was with the uh, uh, photography and stuff for the the yearbook and the, the student newspaper. Um, and then uh, with uh, the college radio station was involved with that. Yeah. What were your goals after graduation? Well, I got out, graduated 77, and uh, that was back right after Watergate, and the journalism field was very difficult to land a job in, um, it, and it didn't pay that well. And uh, I had worked uh, uh, years in high school. My uh, side job was working restaurant business and uh, I decided to go and go into restaurant management it paid a, a lot better than the journalism uh, degree did yeah okay sure in what ways did your awareness of politics change when you were in college oh I was uh the main thing in the, the political science uh, classes was learning, um, uh, setting up budgets, city budgets, set up city planning, uh, things like that where, you know, when you set up the city for proper amount of park green space per square mile, uh, went through the different cities, how they did those plannings, the different types of uh, the city governments from everything from city managers to mayors, uh, city councils, things like that. You'd, uh, but uh, the main thing was you'd learn class was how to hear the other people's point of view and try to put it all together for the, the best that got what you were looking for and satisfying your the other people. Yeah. It was interesting, you know, you'd go through where the professor would sign the city budget and 
work it out and possible grants and things like that and you had to put it together you worked in groups you come come together and make your presentation and the, the class would vote for the best budget things like that where you just learned um that type of well you can't get everything you want but you can work towards it yeah that makes sense sure um can you describe your employment history after college I went and uh, uh, worked for the, it was called Sirloin Stockade. It was a national chain of uh, uh, little budget steakhouses and uh, went into management there. And that's, that stated prior, well, first place I worked with Marshfield, Wisconsin, then transferred as a, to a training uh, facility to do training at uh, Clinton, Iowa and management in Freeport, Illinois, and then down to Bettendorf, Davenport, the, the Quad Cities uh, area of Illinois, Iowa there, then down to Henderson, Kentucky, and then that's when uh, went together with another manager and we bought into the business, our own franchise. Wow, okay, yeah. Um when, if at all, did you get married? In '87. Uh, okay. And do you have any children? Two boys. One born '89, uh, one in '91. Uh, one lives in Bloomington, Indiana. The other lives at uh, Indianapolis. One went to Purdue. One went to IU. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So that classic Indiana split, I guess. Yeah. Um, so when did you decide to become more seriously involved in uh, Indiana politics? I always uh, followed politics, always. Uh, from the f- first time I could vote on, I always uh, watched politics, interested. Uh, when... Uh, in 96, or excuse me, it'd be more 95, it would have been. In 95, um, Rick McConnell was the uh, state representative for District 64, which uh, where I lived uh, the, from Vincennes south, most of Gibson County, uh, just a tiny sliver of the south of Davies, the western portion of Pike County, and then just one um township in uh, Posey County on the its northwest corner um but anyways Rick uh I was talking to him at the county fair and he had told me that he wasn't going to run for re-election he was going to run for congress in uh 96 and uh I said do you think I ought to run he says go for it you got to get going right away and uh so because that was fairly new information yeah and so went home talked to my wife and went the next day to uh john Gregg's uh law office introduced myself and said that i was interested in running for that district 64 and john was at that time uh was um going through recruitment all around the state to 
to go take back the house after they lost it in 94. And uh, he wanted me to get going. That's what he wanted was more uh, business and leadership type people being involved to run a better chance of winning. I went on to um, over to Jack Waldrop, who was at that time the, you know, like the party boss in Knox County. Yeah. And uh, he was on his rocking chair on the front of his porch, introduced <laughs> myself and and told him that I wanted to run. And he went through a whole interview and said, well, John, I'll, I'll support you. And then I went down to Gibson County to uh, his name, Eni Marr. And he was like the, the political Democrat boss of Gibson County, introduced myself and and uh, told him I wanted to run and everything. And he said, well, I'm off to, off to call Jack and, and check and see, but I, I like you. And uh, But I did as quick as I could, went and introduced myself to the people that, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the, the party bosses. Sure. They're really, they're not elected, but they're the ones that, help guide the parties yeah and um by the time it it was like about oh three weeks later before it came out publicly that 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 seat was going to be open seat and other people who thought about running went and they were getting the well we already have somebody Mm. running yeah and uh, i was able to go into the primary on a post for the democrat uh nomination in uh, 94 there wow so i guess no one wanted to try to run against you then they felt that you had a pretty good established connection to party leadership and yeah because i'd already got the endorsement from yeah john Gregg and jack waldrop and any mar yeah and uh two of them are no longer alive now but uh the important one to me was getting uh, john Gregg's. Uh, endorsement yeah so so when the other candidates went to john asking about john says well we got our candidate already i'm not saying you can't run but we got we got our pick yeah so that was i would guess it's just because what i had learned in school about political science how important it was asap to get out there to the people that uh, have the power and let them know your intent. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So, uh, did you have a campaign strategy at all in the general in the in the election when you're going against the Republican candidate? And, uh, oh, let's see, the Republican candidate uh, Rob Robert Craig and Craig with a K, and uh, he's currently a. Uh, a judge down in uh, Gibson County, but uh, ran it. He ran against him, and we just did a working with my friends and stuff. We went door to door, every house in every city in the district, and knocked on the doors and said hi, and handed you know the pamphlet if to them, or hung the pamphlet on the door handle if they weren't weren't home. But we just went out as many things that we could go to to. Uh, church uh banquets and breakfasts and uh, farm bureau um anything we could find that uh, where we could go and meet people and introduce ourselves yeah okay 
So did you have any uh, interesting experiences going to door to door? Of course, you'd learn real quick um, <laughs> that if they uh, wanted to talk a lot about everything, they were probably not for you, and don't waste your time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the people, people that were all for you and everything would just say hi. Yep, I'm for you, or you know, and you move on. But you just learn to to move quickly and don't waste time. Yeah, you got a lot of, lot of doors to knock on. Yeah, makes sense. And people, uh, some areas, uh, there was people that come and say, "This is the first time I've ever had a candidate knock on my door. I'm gonna vote for you," you know. And there'd be <laughs> some of those small towns where yeah, pretty well ignored. But you know, this is the first time I was running, so we were trying to hit every door we could. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, See. So were there any things that you tried to campaign for or against when you were running? Um, no big um, issues. It was just to um, represent the, the people, fair property tax, um, uh, more uh, funds for uh, education, um, oh, the funds to provide uh, free school school books, which is sort of funny as it looks like they might even pass that law this year. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's just along the issues when you're a new candidate, you just uh, can be pretty broad. Yeah. What did you think of the election process? Well, just... Uh, it's been the same for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, you know, you just, it's a, uh, was widespread, uh, district cause you get out to the rural areas to split by a number of voters. So it could be really spread out. Mine was pretty spread out at portions of five counties. Right. Uh, what was your reaction when you found out that you won? The election. It was pretty exciting. We won pretty handedly. Um, I guess one of the funny things was the Saturday before the election, we were working neighborhoods in the uh, city of Princeton where it was a, sort of a, a split type vote, um, Republican Democrat area. So we figured we had to hit there again. That was the second time we were hitting the doors there. And uh, I had uh, one of my best friends would go across the street and ring doorbells, and I'd be on across. And if the people wanted to talk to me, I could just trot across the street and say hi. And otherwise, we just waved and thing. But he knocked on one door, and it was my opponent, uh, Robbie <laughs> Craig, was home with his kids watching cartoons on a Saturday morning. Oh my and gosh! That just made my day. But Rob's a great guy, super nice guy. He's a a judge down there in Gibson County now, a super guy, but you know, that was sort of funny there. Yeah. So I, I guess you did not get his vote. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, At that time, the district was uh, probably about, uh, oh, 56, 44. Democrat. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It's no longer now. It's a, a solid Republican district that many people have changed over. Right. 
Did you uh, change your campaign strategies at all for future elections? Yeah, just uh, pretty much the same as uh, those issues are what people remember at home as property tax and uh, and school. Yeah, that's the biggest issues. Right. Now, I think I read something when I was doing research for this interview that you had ran against uh, Eric Holcomb at one point. Yeah, that was in the year uh, 2000 election. Uh, my second uh, re-election in 98, I was on a post. Mm-hmm. And then in 2000, um, Eric Holcomb was a, a staffer for um, Congressman... Um, Hostetler, and uh, he wanted to run for office, and they started a campaign, and uh, it was a, a a lot of money in it, uh, and it, it just happened to be one of those target races. Both sides spent lots of money on the advertising and the mailers and such, but the the one uh, the famous one, of course, was. This was the weekend before the uh, the election. It was a Friday. The Vincent Sun commercial, the Princeton Clarion, and the um, Posey uh, County Weekly. There was uh, half page ads in there about uh, my supporting the uh, bestiality and pedophiles and sexual misconduct and things like that. Right. And if you read the the cut line on there, it backs up for HB 1001, which you know and I know is the budget bill. Yeah. And then the budget bill was the financing for Indiana University. And then Indiana University has the Kinsey Institute Library because Kinsey practiced there at IU and they've kept the, a library of all his research material. So therefore, I support those topics. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there, read that, and I started laughing. And I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. I made humor out of it. And every place I uh, talked, I brought up the ad myself and and told about how crazy it is. And it's pretty bad when the candidate resorts to something like that. Um, and I won very handedly. That yeah. election <laughs> was a big surprise. And some people wonder how many votes that cost um, – Holcomb on that that ad. Yeah. Uh, Eric did not put that ad together. It was put together by someone else that brought it to his campaign and pushed that on there to be a good thing to run the weekend selection. Uh, Eric's a lot uh, better person than that, and I I truly believe that he had nothing to do with that that ad. Yeah. Uh, but it just uh, sort of backfired. Yeah. And uh, but uh, one thing for me, I on that uh, the the election Tuesday on election, I made uh, made it on uh, the uh, uh, below the crease on page one uh, B of the of the Wall Street Journal had a. Uh, a column about the worst campaign strategies for that election. And I got my name in the wall street journal. So I was pretty happy. And, uh, the campaign also made the Washington post for the, 
uh, most money spent on campaigns in the United States. Wow. Washington Post also. So both those ones you can pull up on internet if you want to look at those. But the Washington Post has me, John Franson has Indiana or has Illinois instead of Indiana, but it's listed in that list there. So wow. I was pretty happy to get my yeah. name listed in national papers. <laughs> yeah, that's always interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, how much money was spent in the campaign? Bet- yeah, in total on the campaign between you and Holcomb. I don't know, but it was over a million dollars. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, between the two of us, I don't know the exact. I could dig it out if you need to. But no, that's that's fine. Lot. Um, so like, did you know beforehand that this campaign was going to be so expensive? No. Okay. No idea. No. Um, you know, it was, uh, what was the presidential election that there was that, uh, 2000 would have been, uh, Bush, um, Bush Gore or? Yeah. Bush Gore. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, wow. And so do you think the amount of money spent kind of made that election more tense and stuff for both sides, or they felt more pressure to to try to... Yeah, pressure and stuff, but it didn't... I don't think the, there's much change in the vote. It's just that you have to counter your opposition's yeah. advertising. So you're, if you're... The, the opponent has spent a uh, $20,000, you have to match it in advertising the, the counter, their attack ads and such like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't think it changed much. The, the dollar amount changed much to the vote totals. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing would be that since Vincennes is in the middle of, uh, it's on the edge of Terre Haute Television's area and on the Evansville television area so the city gets both Terrell and Evansville so the campaigns bought lots of advertising both in Terre Haute and Evansville mm-hmm. and uh, if I was down in Evansville people would say hi to me and and thought I was their state representative same thing in Terre Haute because I was on their TV so much yeah now, when it comes to like a, a, a race where it's you know a Democrat versus a Republican, how how big of a difference would you say uh, the amount of money you spend makes in terms of getting votes? Um, because I guess are you just really competing for swing voters then, or yeah, you're, you're competing for swing voters, but when the opponent is spending lots of money and they're doing attack ads, mm. you have to counter that. And that's where you're, it's important to match their expenditures to counter their attack ads. Yeah. Or or not only counter attack ads, uh, do attack ads back at them, so they have to worry more about their counter ads to your attack ads. I mean, it's it's a it's a game of chess. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, so. Uh, what were you thinking when you first walked into the state house for your first day in office? Well, it was uh, 50-50, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats in the Indiana House in 96. Um, and the um, the um, oh, it was uh, 
Frank O'Bannon had won the governorship, so the, according to the the House rules, the uh, or I'm not sure it might be Constitution. Um, the Speaker of the House is the the whichever the the statewide official that won, whether the governor or the Secretary of State. And it was governor that year, so Democrats won that, so they got to choose the Speaker of the House. So John Gregg uh, was voted in as Speaker of the House, and it was 50-50. They made that change back uh, one time prior when it was 50-50, and they alternated uh, Speakers of the House every other day. And that just didn't work out, so they they changed that law to, to put that in um Ooh, there'd just be one speaker. Yeah. And it was pretty interesting because every vote counted then because it was 50-50. And uh, if a bill passed, there had to be at least one person across the line on the votes. So it was a very, very interesting year. And uh, were, the budget stalled at 50-50 to and went into a special session to work out the the budget that year. Yeah. Interesting. So how'd you learn the ins and outs of uh, the General Assembly? Well, I was involved in high school uh, with uh, the student council and in college worked for uh, with the, the college student council. I learned uh, parliamentary procedure pretty good and uh, it's, it's good to know that in certain situations when to your advantage, um, it's one of the best things to do is learn parliamentary procedure. So yeah. I remember doing that and that having picked up, uh, with, uh, my journalism, um, uh, knew how to write the, the PR pieces and, uh, articles and things like that, knew how to write speeches, things like that, that helped. But going in on the first uh, term, uh, learning a lot, and that was right when they started uh, giving laptops to the representatives, a whole new thing. There'd probably be about, oh, a third of the representatives used laptops, and the rest were still using the paper bills back then. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um People would start to send uh, request letters by email and such, and there was a whole new thing learning the how to respond and quick quick responses, things like that. It was just technology was changing. Yeah. Did you have any uh, political mentors at all when you served, or? No, I just when. Uh, Oh, um, of course, John Gregg is who I always uh, consulted with when I needed. Um, the um, uh, I met a blank here on, uh, I'll think of a second. He was a state representative from Fort Wayne, used to be Fort Wayne Mayor, Wynn Moses. Win Moses was one I always consulted with. Okay. Um, the um, oh, there's several of the 
reps that I'd been there a long time that I'd gained good friendship with and would, when it came down to how I should handle this, I would consult with them. It, it, they'd been through it a hundred times and they could tell you what you needed to do. Uh, you'd learn that when your, when your bills was going to be called up before in the, in committee that, uh, how to prepare for it. And I would learn to go to the members of the committee ahead of time and say, Hey, I, uh, I got a bill coming up in a couple of days for your committee. And this is what this bill does. Do you have any questions? Handle things then rather than waiting till committee for the, the surprise questions you could get uh, prepared for it and be ready to answer those questions in advance. And when you did that, you had a, your bill looked a lot better and you had a better chance of getting passed. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and one, well, this is, I'm trying to think of what year it was, but it, it probably, I'm not sure, but it was for Toyota was going to do expansion and, uh, they had filed their tax abatement paperwork, uh, a week late and weren't eligible for the, their property tax abatement on the, the inventory and the, the buildings. And so I went and put legislation together to forgive them of that and allow that. And so I went, uh, I was on ways and means, but, um, went to the other, uh, key members of ways and means in advance and sat down talked to them on it and cleared all the questions, everything went in there and, uh, Ways and Means Committee, and here's all the press for this big bill to give tax abatement to Toyota and everything, and brought up the bill, and uh, Pat Bauer was chairman, called if there were any questions, and there was no questions. Fast huh. <laughs> unanimously, here's the press going, how'd that happen, you know? But wow. It's just a matter of uh, when you have a bill coming up ahead to try to address the the disagreements before it comes down to the, the vote. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a, a wise strategy to avoid issues later. Yeah. Um, so how do you keep it, keep track of the needs and wants of your constituents? Uh, mainly uh, you get phone calls on things. Um, and, uh, you did, uh, the surveys and, see if there's any surprises, notice of surveys you could figure out ahead of time what, and they'd match up every once in a while. It'd be different than you expected and you'd find out why. Um, but most of the time when it was uh, a topic, uh, the, all the associations, the lobbyists, everything work on the, the your constituents to email you and letters to you uh, pushing for legislation you could go call and ask the people why they did this did they what's in this bill do you know what's in this bill things like that you just listen to them yeah how often would you say you worked with uh, the other party to get legislation passed quite a bit especially at the uh, end of the session uh, when it goes to conference committee, um, you could 
get held up and everything else because they want their bill for this, for that, and, and things like that. Um, it's just you get you just have to work with them. Uh, you're not going to get it passed. You're not going to get it out of conference committee unless both parties agree. Right. So you, you have to learn to be um, gain friendship with as many people possible during the session. So that when it comes down to the conference committee, um, they if you're friends with somebody, of course, they're going to listen a whole lot better. And there's going to be things that they want added into the bill and conference committee. You just have to take it a step at a time. I'd have bills uh, in conference committee that I'd go over and talk to the, uh, um, the staff over in the Senate with the Republican staff trying to find out what they wanted, what we needed to work out and put the bills together to get through conference committee. It's a, it's an art. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Enjoyed it. Yeah. What was the uh, atmosphere like between members of the different parties when you served? We very friendly. Um, there's no hatefulness or anything like that. I mean, if you just got along as friends, you just had a different point of view. That's all. Okay. Did like, did that relationship change at all over the course of your service or was it about the same the whole time? It got, you, as you got to know more people, um, it got friendlier. You'd know them and they'd be honest with you and say, Hey John, I, I know you got this bill coming down, but I just can't, can't vote for it. Okay. Uh, because it is, you know, but they're still friends. Yeah, sure. Uh, what were the differences between the House and Senate? Oh, the Senate, of course, is only 50 people, and uh, they cover twice the area. Um, the Senate was solid Republican then and, and still is today. Uh, so you knew that if you were going to get a pass, a bill passed, you had to go and work with both sides or it wouldn't get passed. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And how influential would you say party leadership was to getting legislation passed? Uh, very important. Um, they go, the uh, president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House control, have a they control a lot. They have a lot of power. They assign the party chairs and the, the or excuse me, the committee chairs and uh, the membership of the committees. So you had to go and make sure that you uh, kept uh, them satisfied with your your votes, your actions, if you wanted to get appointments to the committees that you wanted to serve on. Yeah. Did you ever go against party leadership when you served? Well, um, not really during conferences. Um, when uh, I'm trying to think of what year it was when uh, Pat Bauer became the Speaker of the House. I'm trying to think if that was 02, 2002. I'm not sure. Um, but in there and then it was, uh, you know, the party leadership all going for the speakership 
after John Gregg didn't run for re-election. And, uh, you know, there you got to you gotta be careful. It doesn't do you any good if you uh, vote against the person that becomes speaker and you just won't get your committee assignments, which are very important. So right. you got a little bit there. And you get phone calls from all of them trying to seal your support, things like that. Just it's part of the game. Yeah. Um, how did your legislative service affect your family life? Legislative service were very important. Uh, you, uh, when you have an idea for legislation or have idea for uh, amendments to bills, you'd look f- if you had a issue that you were working on and trying to get it into another bill that was similar content. Um, Legislative Service Agency was fantastic. You sit down with them, explain what you're trying to do, the areas you believe that need to be changed, and work with them on it. Um, they're just super um, good, especially the the long-time experience one. They know right away how to put that together. And it takes a lot of work because they have to comb through the rest of the, the um, code and find conflicts that need to be corrected and things like that. So it'd be very difficult to do without legislative service agency. Right, right. Um, was it difficult for you to balance being a legislator and maintaining uh, your family life and stuff? Uh, yes, it is. You're, um, back then, I don't know how they do it now, but back then basically we went Monday through Thursday and, uh, you know, and would sometimes have a short thing Friday morning, but mainly it was four days a week. And then when, when you're back home, though, you have all the uh, meet your legislative sessions in the different uh, counties and other events going on that you tried to be at. So, yes, it does put a strain on on the family. Sure. Uh, how influential were lobbyists when you served? Uh, they're very inf- influential. Uh, they come, uh, can point out how, what a bill is going to do or what a bill won't do and, uh, why it's being proposed, uh, who the lobbyist represents, why they th- believe it's so important. Um, the lobbyists were, uh, great to work with, um, you know, even if you disagreed with them, you still, you could just, if you just shot straight with them, you didn't have a problem. The lobbyists only have a, seem to have a problem with those that say, yes, I'll support it. And then the person goes in and votes against it. But uh, if you just straight with them and, and say, yes, I'll support that or no, I, I'm sorry, I just can't support that or I'm not sure yet, but as long as you're straight with them, you can work with the lobbyist well. And then lobbyists also will uh, research information for you if you're uh, interested in something with their uh, field that they're working with, their association or what have you. They're fun to work with because they'll do get the research done for you. Right, right. So was it... I mean, was it easy to determine if a lobbyist was trustworthy or not? Or, I mean, 
did you ever have any issues where you weren't sure if you could trust a lobbyist or? Oh yeah, when you first meet them, and then sometimes, and or another legislator will say, "Hey, whatever you do, just be careful with so and so." That they're not always a straight shooter. Ah, okay. uh, I wouldn't confront the. I, there wasn't that many, very minimal, minimal um, that were like that because they wouldn't last very long in that field if they were that way. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Do you think that campaign donations or gifts had much influence on a politician's decision making when they served? Or yes, it does. Uh, when you uh, when it's a constituent calls that you remember them at a fundraiser or whatever, you're going to put a little bit more time into listening what they have to say uh, than a person that you never met before or whatever. Um, you're going to make sure you hear fully out on the, the issues. Um, a lot of times when they're against something, if you just, you got to ask and find out why and what's this going to do. It's oftentimes you you research it, get back with it and say, no, the lobbyist or the legislative service agency says, no, that that does not affect that part. It's specifically in there, but we can go add an amendment just to make absolutely certain that it will not affect that part. Um, if they hadn't called and asked you about it, you wouldn't have known to, to do that research. Yeah. But yes, yes, I, uh, a person that has given you a contribution, you, you're going to make sure you listened. I'm not saying you means you're not going to listen to those give contributions, but the ones that do, you you absolutely certain to make sure they get listened to. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, how influential was uh, redistricting uh, when you served? Oh, huge! It was redistrict in uh, uh, 2001, um, and. Uh, the so it was the Democrats still had control, and they um, put together the House redistricting, and the the Republicans had control of the Senate, and they took care of the Senate redistricting. It was pretty well a mutual agreement between the Senate and the House that the party controlling them would handle their redistricting. Of course, party. Members serve from both parties on the redistricting committee, but you know they have the party in control has the the votes to push forward their redistricting. Uh, it does affect in my area. There is quite a uh, bit of of votes that were taken out of my district and padded on to others that needed help. But it also uh, at the at a time when district my district was turning republican and it took quite a few votes out of my my district that were strong democrat votes but you know you don't you it's easy to uh look back now you can say that but at the time that's hard to see yeah no that makes sense um so what would you change about the legislative process based on your experiences um there's lots of uh, proposals people have put forward about um, 
having a nonpartisan outside group do them. Different states have tried it, and, and um, it goes back and forth, but I don't know of any method that could be done that would make it totally fair, um, no matter if there's humans involved, there's going to be bias in the redistricting. Um, if it gets too loaded on one area, we see how the court decisions are on that. And uh, but I don't I don't know the answer there because every different states have tried different things, but nothing seems to be the absolute perfect way to redistrict. But it does matter. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a difficult uh, situation for people to figure out. Yep, it's uh, hard. Um, yeah, really hard. And you sit there and try to keep counties together as much as possible. But you know, if you're going to go truly split the 100 seats of the House by population, it's, it's really hard to keep total counties together. Yeah. And uh, you may be able to keep um, a couple counties, but there's going to be a, a lot of counties that are going to be split in half, so that's no more fair to them than the counties that are kept together. Um, it's it's very hard to do, but it has to be done. Right. Uh, what would you say were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the General Assembly? Hmm. Hmm. controversial i mainly it was just be the the budget every two years okay and uh there the uh the republicans tried to get uh more of the uh, public education funds to go into private schools through vouchers um that'd probably be the main issue uh there Trying to think, but that was would probably be the main one was uh, financing on uh, public education. Probably be the most controversial. Um, I went and carried through the with Senator Lindo Hume in the Senate, where that the constitutional amendment to remove the inventory tax. And uh, we carried that, but what was so funny about it is that here we're moving and everybody's for doing away with the inventory tax, and it started coming towards the end there, and all of a sudden the Chamber of Commerce wasn't so sure that they were in favor of it anymore after it was ready to pass. And they said, well, if you reduce the inventory tax, that doesn't help any of the um, administrative type jobs of lawyers, doctors, things like that that don't have inventory so that wouldn't affect them at all so that would mean that their the other taxes would go up because they don't have inventory and they went back and forth on it. The, they finally um, decided not to not to be against it uh, but it was I, I sort of laughed at that. Here we're working to do away with inventory tax, and all of a sudden the Chamber of Commerce wasn't so big in favor of it. It did pass the thing and then pass two years, or excuse me, four years, or uh, the next session passed again, went on the ballot, and that became 
uh, Constitution Amendment was uh, when Indiana did away with the property of the inventory tax. It's a portion of the property tax, the inventory, and the per- off the personal property tax. But that was, I sort of laughed at that when the Chamber of Commerce coming to me and said, well, we have a hard time finding support for it. And you're going, we're doing away with inventory tax, helps every single business that has inventory in and you're not in favor of it. Now, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Okay. Um, let's see. I also noticed that, like, it looked like you had some involvement with some debates regarding, like, property taxes and the cigarette tax. Do you remember that at all? Well, it, uh, yeah. They go, uh, you know, it's the property tax is. Uh, when I, when it gets confusing, but just so we're clear, uh, property tax normally they separate in Indiana. They, they call the land and the building as real estate tax, and then other um, your equipment in the factory and things like that is property tax. And then we used to also have included in that property tax was the inventory. And I would always this campaign about the dumbest thing you can do is charge uh, you want business to come to indiana but we're going to charge you for your tax on your inventory for product that you have for sale and we're going to charge you tax on your equipment for manufacturing things and i just sitting there how are we supposed to recruit business to come to indiana if we have the personal property tax you know on equipment and inventory and um and it's obvious, of course, getting rid of the inventory tax in Indiana, what it's done is you see the whole west side and northwest side of Indiana uh, with all those warehouses now that store inventory and ship it out through the airport every morning to get the fast delivery of inventory around. But those all those places wouldn't be there if Indiana still uh, charged property tax on inventory it's just you know you drive on interstate 70 west and you drive by warehouse after warehouse after warehouse after warehouse and those wouldn't be there if we hadn't worked together to get inventory tax taken away yeah okay um let's see i also saw that there was some debate going on regarding like gambling legislation do you remember that yes the the main one is was in French Lick when they tried to, and they did do it. They tried to change law and law of the gambling in, in French Lick, and unfortunately, game gambling is fun and things people do, but unfortunately, in casinos with the slot machines and things like that, the odds are so against the person. It's almost like taking advantage of people and in a area like French Lake trying so hard, it's just a, a rural area. And, uh, you know, I just didn't think too highly of uh, expanding there. It did pass. Um, one thing on that was when the bill was coming down the house, I went through the bill line for line, and I found a, a bunch of areas in the bill that didn't make sense. It was just it was sort of humorous, and I was reading those off, and the 
legislature was laughing and it passed and then they amended it to correct those errors that we had found. But um, the French Lick Casino has worked out very well uh, through the uh, Cook Foundation. It pretty well owns it and runs it and it, it's run very well. And so it has worked out. And uh, but and that I just couldn't see the casino being a smart thing to do in that area. Mm. It, it, it did work out. Okay. Um, what about legislation uh, regarding assault weapons? Do you remember anything like that? In my my district, uh, the constituents are very uh, pro gun, and uh, so I supported gun rights. And, uh, but get some, you know, some people in, uh, in, uh, a district would be against it, but in the surveys and then my door to door stuff, they were, um, very strongly, uh, pro gun. Mm, okay. Uh, the, the percentage of people that do hunting here, things like that. And then the people of self-defense and I supported the gun rights because of my constituents. Mm-hmm. So was that kind of, uh, like, in terms of, like, your political philosophy when it came to representing your district, were you a type of legislator that always tried to support what the majority of your constituents would support? Or would you have, like, personal things, like, personal ideas that you would go by as well? I, I went by the constituents' uh, viewpoint on issues. Okay. And sometimes it would be against my personal thing. Uh, I never was a big fan of the death penalty, but my constituents were very high in favor of allowing the death penalty, so I support the death penalty. I mean, it's just sort of along that line that mm, yeah. uh, I would go by the constituents' viewpoint right. just about all the time on that. Yep. Interesting, okay. My, my you know, um, on the pro-life issue, the constituents were highly uh, pro-life so I supported pro-life and that's my personal too but um, the gun rights you know I sort of think well there got to be some control but the, the supporters really want uh, the right to own guns yeah yeah it's always interesting to see like because I guess that's a kind of a question legislators always have to ask themselves when they first get into office like okay so how do I balance my personal views with what my constituents want or, or yeah. So. It's funny because the legislators, we talk about that amongst ourselves and they used to be something where I say, well, the Democrat legislators support their constituents. <laughs> the Republican legislators will support their personal opinion. <laughs> that was always a, you know, I, w- I would imagine they would say the same thing back, but I, right. I remember those, that those comments like that. Yeah. Um, I'd say the last thing I saw in the newspaper was that like pollution penalties. Do you remember that? What kind of penalties? I got pollution penalties. Like a, a business getting, getting, I think it was something like a, a business getting fined, but also it'd be like published in the newspaper for like if they violated some pollution law, and um, some debate. It's, it's called a what a solution penalty. Uh, no, po- pollution with a P. 
Oh, oh, pollution penalty. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it, there's, we have, in my district, you have farmers, you have industry and things like that. They, they're willing to work on it, but the, they were, you know, we weren't ready to go put super stiff penalties to the point that we, businesses would leave my district or leave Indiana. And I had a problem with that, those huge penalties, yes. And it always seemed like when there's a, a pollution violation thing, like they always come out with these super high penalties they smack them with, and then the lawyers have to go back and forth and negotiate it and get it down to reasonable. And I just thought it'd be a lot better just to get reasonable right off the bat and, and get get stuff taken care of without running all the industry out of Indiana. Ah, yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, I guess some big picture now, reflective questions. Um, you know, when did you decide to leave the Indiana General Assembly and why? I got defeated in 2004, okay. my fifth, fifth election. And uh, it was a close one. It was 83 votes. Wow. And uh, it was Troy Woodruff. Uh, ran against me, and Troy did a, a great job of getting out and campaigning, um, and uh, that would have been the, uh, uh, see, 04, was that Bush's second? Uh, I'm not sure. Might have been, yeah. I'm not sure where it was, 04. It was, uh, but... Uh, he did a good campaign, and it came down, and then uh, that's when the uh, southern rural area of Indiana was slowly but surely going, turning from Democrat to Republican like it is now. But it was a close election, and it was 83 votes out of the, I don't know, 25,000 votes. So it was a close one, and uh, I went, it's all pretty well, it was electronic voting, I reviewed everything, and it wouldn't have been a waste of time to do a recall, so conceded, but, yeah, that was 2004 when I was defeated. Yeah, okay. Um, how would you summarize your time as a state legislator overall? I loved it. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I got some stuff done that I didn't want it done and uh, met a lot of people. Still keep contact today with uh, former legislators. Um, a lot on Facebook, a lot on uh, emails, uh, but you still see them, still keep contact with them. And uh, it's, it's well worth it for just the number of people you meet and become friends with. Yeah. What lessons did you learn from your experiences? Um, main thing is uh, take care of problems as soon as you can. When there's disagreements, get face uh, facial contact with the person and discuss it and figure out how it can be worked out rather than letting it drag on and get worse. Um, if you got uh, disagreement on legislation, uh, as soon as you can, work it out because oftentimes 
legislator gets contacted by one side before you get contact and they've already made their decision or committed and if you had been there early you might have got their commitment so it's just you got to do it you got to get to them as quick as you can on the issues and get your commitments or make the changes they need to get their commitment yeah true uh did you have any regrets as a legislator Oh, I don't know. Uh, when we had in the 2003 budget, 2003 budget, uh, we had uh, some uh, projects put in there for my district, and then the uh, budget got tight, and. Uh, those funds never got distributed because the state was running a, running out of money. The budget was tight and they cut backs. But the I like mine to be you know distributed out. But there's others that knew about that there was going to be a budget problem and got their funds distributed in their districts ASAP. And I went until later when I'm sitting there going, wait a second, you know, and was uh, some monies promised to mayors for helping with their fire department or what have you were, were canceled. And, uh, you know, you just had to go to them and say, sorry, I got it approved, but the funds aren't going to be released. The money's not there. And that was a little difficult there. But if I had fought for it to be a little sooner, maybe they would have got it. Um, now I just, I enjoyed it. Eight years was a lot of fun. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, what was your proudest moment? Mm. I don't know. What one time uh, there was, it was uh, 50-50, and they went and. Uh, I'm trying to remember where all that took place, but the the Republicans going to walk out so there wouldn't be a majority and stuff. And it got this thing, and they start debate. And I said, Rose, and said, point of order. There's no debate on on a motion to table, and uh, or was it a motion to recess? Don't forget. But anyways, the <laughs> yeah. It was funny because then they go up there, I'll discuss, and they come out, reps and friends, you're correct, there is no debate, we have to take the vote. And then uh, the next year, and the, the Rules Committee changed the parliamentary procedure in the House to allow debate on a motion to um, to recess. So that was sort of funny there, but <laughs> a lot of fun when you, you're a little thinking takes effect yeah sure it was fun to be able to get get bills passed and help out your constituents um what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators um just uh just because you got one constituent wants a bill passed or whatever doesn't mean you need to go forward with it. You need to check her out with more people uh, and then find out 
who that's going to affect and check with them to uh, before you go through with legislation because sometimes you could get pushing on some legislation that nobody's in favor of uh, the uh, and we discussed earlier uh, contact with the other legislators to, to find out where they have disagreements with your legislation and try to work those changes out as soon as you can uh, when uh, there's a bill passing through somebody else carrying. If there's something that you could would like to add to that to help an area that you're looking, um, those type of things, it's, it's called be friendly and work with others. Yeah, makes sense. Um, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, of course, it's the budget. And... Uh, that's, I mean, that's the main thing. And then uh, to, uh, uh, I don't know, look out for what the state laws need to be. Federal laws have their area, state laws have their area. But the budget is the number one. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty big one. <laughs> yep. Um, what would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? Um, it's amazing how few legislators have have control. The speaker committee chairmen have the most power, um, and uh, some legislators don't have much power. Uh, People don't realize how strong some of the legislators are over others. Uh, that's the way the system's set up, and you have to work with it. Uh, so when you get in there, you need to uh, become friends with others and work out agreements between you. But the constituents have no idea about how powerful some legislators are over others. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's hard for them to see the power dynamics at play. <laughs> yeah. Um, how has the state of Indiana changed uh, since you moved to the state? Uh, it, the biggest thing is Indiana's been working towards um, more trying to get the um, more of the technology and more of the medical research things to locate in Indiana. Um, Indiana, of course, used to be the huge in manufacturing of automobiles and recreation vehicles. Um, and as that stuff starts changing, Indiana had to go for other um, corporations, businesses, and it does help. Um, Indiana has start, you know, when they're adding um, pro teams before Indiana didn't wasn't much of a pro sport thing. Uh, they monopolized on the college sports with the NCAA and things like that. But with them getting the Colts and the Pacers um, and now soccer and everything else, it's, it has helped Indiana. Uh, we have to have those type of things to get corporations to, to believe Indiana is the place to locate uh, with a low cost of living, low tax taxation, and it's a good place to go, good place to live. Yeah, sure. 
Um, how do you think the people of Indiana have changed? Well, it's uh, used to be uh, the southern portion of Indiana and the uh, urban areas were predominantly Democrat with the, and that has changed a lot and the southern Indiana is no longer dominant uh, Democrat and we're even seeing some of the urban areas uh, going more uh, Republican but then we're seeing other uh, areas going Democrat. We're starting to see some of the donut areas around Indianapolis uh, go stronger on Democrats so it's interesting to follow the, the party changes um, and uh, it's, it's up to the parties to press their issues, uh, what your neighbor believes uh, when everybody in town starting to say they support so-and-so, it starts going towards that. It's, it's ended. Indiana has been changing on its uh, vote concentrations in certain areas. As, as you can tell from the legislature, it's super majority for Republicans now in the House and Senate. Yeah, interesting. And it used to be, like I said, we talked before, it used to be 50-50. Right. Yeah, that is a big change. Um, and let's see, final question. Uh, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? Uh, the people don't exercise as much as they can. Um, majority of people never do anything, no comments. Uh, we still have a, a huge number of people that don't even vote. Uh, of course, that's nationwide, but it is in Indiana also. But uh, people need to uh, look at the candidates, decide, and uh, and get out and vote. And then they need to contact the legislators when their viewpoint on issues is very easy to do, but it does count. And uh, very few people do it. Yeah. Well, is there anything that I did not ask about that you wanted to mention? Or? Oh, I wish there was more uh, women involved. Um, women have issues that are very important that don't get looked at. Uh, we get a, we're starting to get more, but it's still dominant male. It'd be a whole lot better if it was 50-50. Mm, okay. That, but uh, we just we're starting to see more and more getting interested in it. But it is important. I wish it get closer and closer. Yeah, it'd be a, a lot better for our, our laws. Be a lot better for people to move to Indiana when they know that we care about those issues. Yeah, that's true. That that definitely makes sense. Well. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this project. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. You, you're a great interviewer. You've obviously been doing this for quite a while. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that.